This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 471, for August 26th, 2015. We're sponsored this week by Red Hat. Folks, welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. We're nearing the end of summer, and uh, we're going to get back to school soon and start seeing some real news start to crop up. But, you know, summer has actually been pretty noisy, pretty interesting, uh, from alphabet soup to new routers to uh, corporate shenanigans. It's been a fun summer. And uh, I am, as I always am, a senior contributor to Macworld, uh, Glenn Fleischman. And joining me is Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hello. The summer has not been as quiet as expected, although it, it died down a little. People are finally going on vacation, I think. Well, here the school just uh, started back up, so what? Uh, there's traffic again, and that's school nice. School in August? <laughs> yes, in Seattle, we don't start until the Wednesday after, after Labor, Labor Day. After Labor Day, right? Uh, yeah, that would that would be make sense. Assuming yeah. there, we may have a teacher strike, so you know, I may have more children running around in my house. We'll start doing homeschooling and, uh, and uh, you know... Just, I'll just give them tablets. If I give them iPads, they can teach themselves, right? I don't have to, sure. They don't have to go to school anymore. They'll, they'll be teaching you. Well, that's good. That's great. I'll just get them to start programming. Um, saw a headline the other day that I enjoyed a lot. Can they was, just play Minecraft all day? That's like engineering or something, right? They do that already. So they're, they've already got their degrees. Way got, ahead of the game. They've got their mining degrees. They went to the school of mine, Minecraft. <laughs> and, uh, there was a Child uh, mine. great headline recently, uh, just a couple days ago. It was Unicorns Poach Silicon Valley Employees. And I... Walked up a Photoshop of a unicorn <laughs> you seem, like, with impaled. a pot. Which just like <laughs> guys in hoodies, like impaled on unicorn horns. Yeah, just you know, just fry them up in the pan, boy. Poach them in the pan, put a little water in there, heat it up. Like that's what the summer's like. Unicorn that would poaching. Be so sad. <laughs> boing Boing is famous for doing unicorn chasers. Is like the the uh, unicorn refreshing your palate after something particularly horrible they've posted or difficult. And uh, this is unicorn poachers, which I guess is. Uh, the meal you eat with a unicorn chaser. It's a chase, it's a, a, a shot and a beer. It's a chaser and some poached <laughs> Silicon Valley employees. Uh, well, you know, beer. speaking of Silicon Valley, speaking of Apple, as we do in this podcast, uh, let's start with some news and follow up. Uh, hey, Tim Cook likes email. Tim Cook I is, mean, he sent an email. <laughs> chatty Kathy. Uh, yeah, Jim Does Kramer. Does anybody really like email? Email's the worst. It's terrible. But Jim, Jim Kramer. <laughs> Uh, the famous uh, screaming madman of um, stock. He's the mad money guy yeah. on CNBC. Man with just terrible, yells and there's sirens and Terrible advice. Bells. With terrible, terrible advice. He got a shtick and, uh, you know, and uh, his advice is awful. He followed his advice, you'd be poor is the problem. He's entertainment though. And people watch him for, I think, entertainment value. But he also has a pretty big forum on CNBC at Mad Money. So, yeah, so he sent an email to Tim Cook, not expecting a response. He has said he doesn't have that much contact with him uh, or doesn't really know the guy and uh, said, hey, uh, you know, concerned about China sales and Apple and so forth. And Tim wrote him back this little letter that this may actually wind up in an SEC investigation. <laughs> uh, because it's not clear whether, you know, Tim didn't give him material information, but if he sent it, Privately, it's one thing to send a press release out, or if he'd sent the email and then also publicly released it simultaneously. But um, it actually is an issue when you email an individual analyst and you give them insight into a company. And uh, so there may, you know, there may be some uh, dispute over Tim having done that. Who knows? So the problem was that the stock market here was floundering based on um, the stock market in China not doing so well. I don't. Sure. I mean, I'm not really a stock market Let's person, but this was my know. very Nobody rudimentary knows. understanding: is that there's problems in the the Chinese economy, 
And this is causing ripples in our economy since, you know, global, everything's connected, blah, blah, blah. So Tim emailed Jim Cramer to say, okay, like we do a ton of business in China. We're in China all the time. We personally are not worried about this China thing. Our sales are strong. Um, We're actually, it's still growing in July and August. Best performance of the year for the App Store during the last two weeks. And, you know, kind of hedges it like I can't predict the future, but he's happy with how it's going. So they haven't like Apple didn't see, you know, the bottom fallout of its business in China these, you know, last few days, I guess, which is yeah. most of the problem. Big thing is China's allowing its currency to, to devalue uh, more rapidly than it has in the past. So you've got the market. They are dropping, although the market as of Monday, I think, was still up 40% over last year. So it lost all its gains for the year in China. Um, but you know, a lot of those are illusory gains. Until you sell, your money on paper isn't worth anything unless you're trading on margin or borrowing money against it and you get a margin call and have to suddenly cough up the money for stock that's worth less. And there's some of that going on. But the market, it's, it's like the stock market in China got overheated. But I think the correction, there's some suspicion the correction is actually not as horrible. It's like, okay, if it goes back to the level it was at, Last year, it could still drop quite a bit from now and and not be so bad. And it's not necessarily representing actual money because the money in the market isn't locked in until you sell, you know, until you try to do something with it. Uh, So, you know, a stock can go up hugely and um, it doesn't represent money lost or gained on the same basis that uh, because all the shareholders, you know, get that value on paper. Um, But I think think there is more of a concern of the devaluation of the currency. So the the, um, renminbi is now... uh, valued at, um, I forgot how much it's dropped now, but it means that American goods cost more, basically. And that may be hard for Apple. Um, It's got the advantage that a lot of stuff is made in China. So if the renminbi is cheaper, then that means that stuff that's denominated in the local currency is cheaper to pay for as well. So um, That's a good point. Yeah. So if Apple's costs, you know, if the currency drops 10% against the dollar, but Apple's costs also drop 10% against the dollar for all of its, you know, uh, labor and components that it purchases there. It's got, I mean, that's the problem with, like, you look at Apple now, and I remember at some point, you know, it's got this worldwide uh, supply chain of stuff it buys. So every piece of an iPhone or a Mac uh, just about is coming from a different part of the world, and labor is the big Chinese value add. Some stuff's made there, and some stuff's, uh, you know, I think uh, the glass factories are different. I mean, the chips, like, it's not like... Everything's being manufactured in China and everything's being assembled there and then shipped to other countries for value added, whatever. It's all um, all over the world coming together in one place and shipping back out. So, but Tim, uh, yeah, I don't, there's that issue. It's like, would, would Steve Jobs have sent that email? Probably not. <laughs> Cause Steve, I miss when Steve used to email just like randos. Like yeah. someone would just email him being like, my iPod should be bigger. And he would just send back an email and it would make the news. That was fun. I yeah. Missed that. But he used to, I don't remember him ever sending anything that was related to market performance. And, nah. uh, and it sounds like Cook's email did the job too. It's uh, Apple stock, uh, things, you know, rallied a little or stabilized and, uh, yeah, Maybe a, Tim is just more of a nerd for this stuff. I mean, he's gone back and forth with Carl Icahn a couple times. Yeah. And maybe I think this it's is good. just his jam a little more. I think the issue is like, do all shareholders have access to the same information is the is the principal issue. And so if he's emailing one analyst, you know, is that the thing? But then he knew the analyst would immediately, uh, you know, he wasn't going to trade on it and um, would immediately spread the information. So it's not quite a press release, but it was good. Uh, speaking of uh, things we don't know things about, um, 
Spotify went through a bit, went through a spot of trouble, spot of trouble last week at Spotify. <laughs> um, I think the headline was, sorry about our super creepy new privacy policy. I wasn't following this. I'm not a Spotify user. A couple stories at Macworld about uh, like a little bit of a ping pong game there. What did they, what did Spotify do? They rolled out a new privacy policy. First, it was just for the UK, and then it quickly became um, relevant here as well. And it just said that, okay, we're going to ask for a lot of the information on your phone. And they didn't, you know, do the the smart thing of, you know, spelling out exactly when they would use this information and for what. And... I mean, on iOS, we have to kind of give permission for each of these things sort of individually. And Android's moving that way with uh, Marshmallow. But before, when you installed an app, you just have to give it all the permissions it wanted kind of at the install. And you couldn't split out like, OK, let it access my camera, but not my contacts. And so they're, they're fixing that on the Android side. But anyway, this privacy policy basically said, um, we want to collect with your permission Anything on your phone, oh contacts, photos, media files, um, location information, and sensor information. Your Ashley Madison login. Yeah, Sorry. data Call about back. the speed of your movements. Like, So they want oh to be able God. to look at your accelerometer and stuff. And some of this makes a lot a, a lot of sense. They, they just didn't – it wasn't even that the information they were asking for was really bad. It was just kind of the way that they that they made the change and didn't – you know, pair it with a blog post saying, okay, like, let's go through this and, and explain wh what's happening. So the location and the sensor data access, I mean, they give you these playlists kind of based on who, where you are and what you're doing. So if you're commuting, it would give you your commuting playlist. And if you're running, it actually has a running feature where it will match, it will give you songs that match the pace of your running. So that's pretty oh, cool. People but love it needs, that. I've seen people tweeting yeah. about how great that is. Yeah, but it you know needs your accelerometer to do that. Duh. Um, the contacts thing was just they're not doing. They're not letting you search for like Spotify is a social thing. You can follow your friends and collaborate on playlists. Um, they're not letting you search by your contacts right now. I think you search for people based on like Facebook or Twitter maybe, but they might add that, and then you know they would need. Excuse me, they would need permission to look at your contacts. Um, the photos was because if you make a playlist and you want it, to, if you make like a road trip playlist, you can put your own photo as the cover photo mm -hmm. for that. So it's all kind of innocuous when you look at it as a whole, but they just did a crappy job of explaining it. So the CEO came out and he was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we did a crappy job. Um, a couple of people in our, in our comments were like, well, I, I already quit, so... Um, I mean, but that's that's pretty anecdotal. But um, yeah, it's it was they it kind of went overboard. Like it was just here's a big change to the privacy, and you know nobody reads those. So then when when somebody reads it and says like, oh man, and they write an article about it, it can kind of blow up. So this blew up a little bit. But yeah, I'd prefer that these companies come out to say, hey, you know, put a blog post out, put out a press release to say, hey, we're making some minor changes. We need to make sure everything's cool because here's how we're using your data. Like, I mean, you know how we every site has a privacy, any smart site has a privacy policy and. In some cases, those are required by local regulation in America and elsewhere. And you'd think they'd have a how we use your information page. It's not – it's, you know, privacy fits into that. But it's like here's why we're asking for – on Facebook, we will ask to have access to your contacts because on Instagram, we will ask. On your mm -hmm. iOS device, on your Android device, they can have a page for that and, when, yeah. and just have the same – I wish there was some – one standard with URLs where it would be go slash privacy – 
slash oh, my data good. or you know whatever and you go yeah. there and be like you'd be like all right wow it's asking me for this on my phone before I click allow or don't allow I'm just going to go to spotify.com slash my data and it's going to say hey the reason you're seeing that is because and if you say no it's cool but you can't put your photo as your you know homepage or whatever um, makes sense. The cool thing about iOS too is they can kind of explain it to you as you go. Um, I've yeah. had a couple interviews with these guys who work at Urban Airship, and they their whole thing is um, helping developers make better push notifications. They have like really good tools to create push notifications and measure metrics based on push notifications. So instead of just you know popping it up and saying Spotify wants to access your microphone, like they'll they'll be another they could have another push notification come like first. Or a, a pop-up, I guess. I'm, I'm probably saying the wrong thing. But you're in the app, and there's a pop-up that says, oh, look, we're about to ask you for your microphone permission, and that's so you can use this one voice control feature. And if you don't, you decide you don't like it, oh. like, here's where to turn it off. Oh, and that's you, great. you tap, like, OK. And then the next one comes up that says Spotify would like to access your microphone. I've seen this in other apps. I'm kind of blanking on which ones right now. But there's there's ways to sort of explain it even as the person is being onboarded to say, like, OK, I want your contacts, but it's because of this. That's and, yeah, clever, if they put all that on their website, too, yeah. that would that would help so much. Because, like, privacy policies are very, <laughs> like, legalese, and no one really wants to read the whole thing. You feel like you're reading a contract because you essentially are reading a contract. So, yeah, it would make much more sense if there was something that just said, like, here's what it's going to look like. Here's what it's going to do. Here's how to turn it off. Like, here, here's why we're asking for it. And, yeah, because, I mean, people want these convenient features. Like, all this stuff that they're doing sounds really great. <laughs> but if you've already, like, alienated people by being creepy, it's, you're never going to win them back. Yeah, this is, uh, like, the terms of service that will get updated and a company won't notify anybody. And then suddenly someone discovers that, you know, Electronic Frontier Foundation or some advocacy group and says they just updated their terms of service to say they have worldwide non-exclusive perpetual rights to everything even if you cancel your account and, and people get go nuts about it and mm -hmm. the company say oh my gosh all we really need are such and such rights but you know because we run servers and blah 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 and that we really needed and our lawyer and then they'll come up with a revised policy that actually spells out exactly what they're going to do with it and you're like there should the lawyers uh who handle these issues need to be filtered right so they're like okay we need this data permit we need these permissions uh, in order to do this. Okay, well, here's a here's the language that we use for that. And instead of that going directly into usage policy, uh, there needs to be another layer that says, all right, let's evaluate the strict legal case of what we need. Because if we ask for too much, look at these 50 times, it was a public relations nightmare. And you can actually can restrict. And some of it's technology. It's it's uh, They have to be able to delete your data later. So if they're saying we need permanent, permanent non-exclusive rights, but they also let you delete everything on their servers, uh, they have to have some kind of thing that says, look, we're going to try our best. We're going to delete it. That's our intent. It's possible some of your information will wind up in somebody else's uh, you know, shared media, and we can't pull it out of there because they made a copy of it. But, but you know, we'll get rid of it everywhere that's connected to your account or whatever. Uh, th there has to be some standard for that. Hey, yeah. uh, public service announcement. Uh, Apple replacing, rear-facing iPhone 6 Plus cameras on some units sold between September 2014 and January 2015. 
So you, you and just, they've sold kind of a lot during yeah. that time. So if you've got an iPhone 6 Plus, <clears throat> you are rear-facing. Uh, uh, John Gruber just wrote this very interesting thing about, like, what is a FaceTime camera and what is an eyesight camera? He was confused. And if John Gruber is confused about what those are, you can bet that 99.999% of the Mac I knew what they were. Did you? I, I'm very well, smart. Okay, wait. So wait. Now, without looking, which one's the <laughs> eyesight camera? The FaceTime camera is in the front. So when the when they had Good. the iSight camera as like a you see he's just old school. It's okay. So well, they no, had they the changed iSight the term. camera as a webcam. No, it they was changed like a standalone webcam and it was called the iSight camera. But they called then, the front facing camera the iSight camera for a while. Before no, they called no, it. Yeah. No. No. On the phone? Not on the phone. They called the cameras on the computer the iSight cameras. And then when they launched FaceTime, they changed all those to FaceTime. And then they started calling the back camera on the iPhone the iSight camera. Oh, is that it? Yeah, I see. Yeah. So it's right. So that was the right. So the FaceTime camera. Oh, my gosh. So the standalone camera was the iSight. And then when they started building it into all the computers, the iMacs and the MacBook, you know, all the flavors of MacBook, um, they started calling that the iSight camera. Right, and, and then, then they called it, and but then, then they, they started calling FaceTime, it the FaceTime camera. They were like, oh, no, it's camera. the FaceTime camera. Right. You use it for FaceTime. Right. So five it's year, right in your face. Right, so fi so FaceTime is low-res front-facing. iSight mm -hmm. is high-res. They already res own the trademark for facing. iSight or whatever, so they're like, oh, we'll call our back camera the iSight. Why do you need to name cameras? Like, that's really dumb. Like, mine it's is the back called, camera and the front camera. Mine is called <laughs> We don't need to be confused Bob. about this. My camera's Bob. <laughs> yeah. But if you go to macworld.com and you look for iPhone 6 Plus, you can find, or go to Apple site, you can find a place where you can punch in the serial number of an iPhone 6 Plus, and it will tell you if you're covered. And I believe they give you three uh, years. The program covers affected iPhone 6 Plus eyesight cameras for three years after the first retail sale of the unit. So even if this happens later, you don't take care of it now. You can only bring it back to the Apple store or an authorized service provider, even if you bought it at the AT&T store right, or store. Because the they're going to swap store. out the camera. They're not going to yep. swap out the phone. Yep. I had that happen once. I had a phone. It had like five, uh, which model it was. I think it was an iPhone five. It was a five or five S. I've forgotten which, which I've sold since. And uh, it wound up getting some dust in it. And there was a you could see like five fingerprints is what it looked like, like five little whatever. And finally, I'm like, all right, I gotta get this taken care of. Make a Genius Bar appointment. I go in. They're like, sure, we'll fix it. They do bring it home. Now there's it's much worse. And like something mm. else, some button didn't work. And I'm like, guys, and I called, they're like, oh, well, you know, the phone's old and it's this blah, 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 and the dust gets in. I'm like, you're supposed to fix it. I have Apple Care Plus. It's under two years old. And I went and they just gave me a new refurb and it was perfect. And, and I sold that one. <laughs> I sold my perfect refurb because I was about to get an iPhone 6. So it all worked out. Everyone was happy. Yeah. So I guess the problem with these iPhone 6 Plus um, models is that the, the, Photos can look blurry. Mm -hmm. I I have an iPhone six, and I haven't had you know trouble with this because it's not a hardware issue. But um, I guess in iOS nine, I've been seeing sometimes the camera has problems like focusing, but I oh, think it's a software thing. That makes sense. And once it finally focuses and you get it locked in, it takes a great picture. But sometimes if I get a blurry picture, it's just because it wasn't focused. So if you're running iOS nine beta on an iPhone six or a different iPhone, and you're like, but my photos are blurry too, it it's, it's probably a software thing. I think they're going to nail it down. Before iOS 9 ships. They're probably trying so. to make it faster, is my guess. Yeah. If they're mucking it's such about a with good it. camera. Autofocus. Autofocus is a very weird thing. So, do you know how it works? I learned this years and years ago. No. So, uh, it looks for contrast. So, autofocus is trying to find areas that um, when it, uh, it changes the focus of the lens and when 
it's in focus, the contrast will be higher than when it's out of focus. So it's identifying, uh, so depending on the technology, oh, like hardware okay. and software. Yeah. So you have an edge. So it's basically, you have an edge of some kind, some edge. And if it goes down, you know, some large amount, I mean, maybe I have a good idea. It may only be able to have to go down like a small amount, but it goes on some unit of focus change, right? And it goes, it uh, does one direction. It's like, okay, that's less contrast. The other, that's more, less more. And then, and so when you have uh, a, taking a picture of something that has very little differentiation tone, it's much harder to get a focus because it can. And depending on the sensor and the software, it'll use different properties, but it's not, it doesn't have depth, right? You know, at some point we'll have cameras that all have a depth sensor. In fact, I was, um, it's a computer vision story I was researching for another publication. One of the big advances in robotics is the, in computer vision is um, the addition of uh, it's RGBD cameras. It's RGB plus depth, which is like the Ooh. connect. And so you can use infrared, you can use ultrasonic. Uh, there's uh, sometimes you use multiple, you know, use two cameras for stereoscopy and can infer. But at some point, you know, so so 3D cameras are one thing, and I think that's kind of a gimmick. But RGBD, like having an iPhone with some kind of very rapid ability to sense depth, um, you know, A, you could be using gestures like a Kinect at some point from the back of the phone, hold it up, and somebody's doing stuff, and it does stuff on the phone. Um, I don't know how far that is. I'm just, I'm speculating, but that's that's one thing you can do with this. But the other is if you had an effective way to measure depth, then autofocus and other you know, kinds of parameters can be uh, much more rapidly calculated and you might be able to take continuous uh, video that's completely in focus no matter what you do and, and whatever. So could happen. Neat. Um, speaking of robots, uh, Apple building a car. We're getting closer to that being a thing that we know is happening. Um, yeah, it seems like it's really happening. Like people were a little dubious now, but I mean, we have emails from a guy to another guy and... Yeah, because they're trying to rent. This is my friend Mark Harris, fellow Seattleite, uh, who wrote a piece for The Guardian about um, emails retrieved through a uh, – not Freedom of Information Act, but through a Public Disclosure Act in California uh, because a public facility at some uh, base that has – Yeah, it's uh, an old Navy base, I believe. Yeah, so they uh, – Apple was corresponding with them about you know getting some private space mm -hmm. that no one could and look into. And they emailed the guy who's in charge of like – you know driverless vehicles coming in to test. So, I mean, like, it, I guess it could have been about something else, but it really seems like they're <laughs> testing a car, most likely driverless because, you know, that's the future. So, yeah, that's that's really happening. I'm it's crazy. They, by it they have things that they're testing. It's not even just like, oh, we're still in the lab, like, you know, making little models. and. I got to believe it's something super specialized because Apple, it's not that they're not after a mass market, but you know the pattern is they want something with... Uh, that's unique that they can bring something to that nobody else has that they can market almost exclusively for a bit because of some combination of R and D and software and whatever they have, mm -hmm. and that they can make a high margin on. And no, all those parameters are really hard with something you're doing greenfield. I remember Steve Ballmer, you know, laughed. Oh, they've never made a phone before. They don't know how hard it is, right? You're like, okay, well, uh, you know, they've never made a car before. That's hilarious. I don't want to say that because you say that. Yeah. You're in the claim chowder pile, right? And uh, <laughs> exactly. it's going to come back to you later. Uh, but I, a car is, you know, car has all these, it just takes years to engineer a car that is safe to drive uh, and that people want to buy and that meets all the regulatory tests. And so you look at Tesla, you know, they almost went out of business. It turns out some of the documents, there's the stuff that's come out in the um, the Elon Musk uh, autobiography that came out. Um, and they were, you know, teetering on the edge, and they pulled it out, and now they have what will, what looks to be like a very successful and profitable uh, business that could transform 
you know, the battery world and car world and whatever. But, you know, even if Apple's been working on this for five years, you still have to then have a production plants and ramp it up and get regulatory approval. And Yeah, there's a lot of laws around. Deal with where do you drive your when your Apple car needs service? Where does it go? Yeah. Putting All, in the whole just infrastructure to sell them and service them is not a small thing. No, I got to believe there's some there's a piece we're missing about what market they want to serve. Yeah, maybe it's just a software platform. All, I mean, the cars are all becoming basically big computers you can drive around in, but it's the same problem with smart TVs is that they're all running you know, different software interfaces and they all kind of suck. So it's possible maybe Apple just wants to build you know, like an operating system for the car, but that's Android. Like That's Android for the car, and yeah. Apple doesn't license operating systems to other manufacturers. They haven't for a long time because it was a bad idea. So, Well, the one thing it could be is, is some car maker could have gone to Apple and said, you need to, make, you need to be the OS for our car. Which would be different, you know. Apple might, or Apple might have said, "We want to be the OS," because all the car makers have their own autonomous car, or you know, uh, like cruise control, super cruise control, and things like that. You know, that are somewhere between assistance and full autonomy. They're all working on it, and mm-hmm. it could be that one major company has kept this incredible thing under wraps, which is difficult to believe given the number of people that must be involved. And this isn't an Apple manufacturing thing. This is Apple partnering. But again, they don't like to have their future tied with somebody else. So why yeah, would they, they make... did like that Motorola Roku <sighs> rocker phone and it sucked. And it, it would be a very un-Apple thing to not make their own like, you know, complete package where they do the hardware, they do the software, like they sell it to you, they do everything. But that's yeah. also like so bananas to to imagine that they would do that with a car. But I mean, it's it's Apple. They could do it. It's so it's, fussy. Or they have the money. They could do it. It's just so fussy. It just seems weird for Apple to – like when people are talking about Apple becoming a cellular carrier, I'm like Apple doesn't want to deal with customer complaints, right? You know, and mm-hmm. that's all you get. Like if you were a cable company like – buying a cable company, no. Being a cellular, no. They don't want to have to build a – I mean they already have a really good customer service operation that gets – you know, top rankings most of the time to deal with a very limited subset of things, the things they make that are modular and they can repair in a store even or through mail order. Like that is a very small subset of, of the kind of things you could sell. And when you get into things where you're constantly touching people, right, like like a cell provider or an ISP or a car maker, all these things, it's a, it's a very, I don't know, I just think it's a different kind of business in terms of what Apple the relationship of being able to bring joy to its customers, right? Of like not, you know, it's kind of an Amazon line, but like they want to have as little contact with their customers as possible because that's expensive. Uh, but they also want customers to have something that works really well all the time. They have nothing to complain about. And so a car, I don't know. I don't think there's something fundamentally different about a car working all the time when you need it and a phone. Yeah. And people are, you know, always concerned about the, like the iPad kind of slump and oh the upgrade cycle on an ipad is not the same as a phone it's like what's the upgrade cycle on a car i just, I just don't you know i'm sure we're gonna I'm driving we're, an 06 around so more information will come out we'll be like oh that's why they're doing it. i just yeah. can't you know and i've read other people's analyses i'm trying to hear a story about why you do it i mean it's a big market we can't see the whole elephant yet and you i know, really want to like take I a know, look at I'm this elephant to, i'm feeling around the tailpipe and uh, there's no tailpipe <laughs> it's an electric car but i'm pumped um well we'll find out we'll find out more but uh the funny there was a funny mac world story of course that was uh, uh my friend mark is not a mac user and he wrote that the emails were signed with a question mark meaning you know uh, oh, what yeah, is that it about? was the best and it was a unicode character right it was an apple it was uh, the apple icon is not a unicode character but apple mm-hmm. so unicode 
Unicode has some, like, what are they called? Not optional, but there's character ranges in which you can do other stuff. The different operating systems do different things. So there's some that are uniformly supported and some are not. So the Apple icon, if you're on a Mac or iOS device, you get the Apple Command icon. Command Shift K. Yeah. And if you're not on those devices, you get a question mark or a robot head or something like that. Wait, is it? Oh, I'm sorry. Option Shift K. Option Shift K. Yeah. So, but you get like a you know, little code block, all the different things when you have Unicode. Uh, errors. I'm watching you type it. We're in Google Docs, folks. It's live. Oh, yeah. Live. Yeah, I had to check. Yeah. Um, see, Google, yeah, yeah, gonna, so Martin at, at our news service, he he was he was kind of kicking himself. This is a little inside baseball. He was kind of kicking himself for not having filed that that public information act when he saw your buddy's guardian story. He was like, "Oh, we could have done that." He's like, "I got to be more on top of that." And I'm like, "Yeah, good thinking." Like he's got you know real reporter chops. He's a news guy. Um, but then, but then he jumped on this thing about like the the question mark. Like he he obtained a copy of the email, and looked at it on a Mac and was like, "Oh, that's the Apple logo. That's not a question mark." So he wrote a story really fast, and and he was kind of the first one to notice it. And it I thought funny. it was really going to blow up, and people were just like, "So?" <laughs> like, no I know. Really all cared. the Mac people were like, "It's a Mac." Well, although we just, I, we we giggled a it, lot. Yeah, it was it was funny if it was a question mark. It's a, but it's you know they were like, "Oh, so mysterious." He signs his emails with a question mark. And it's just like, nope, nope. He's not the Riddler. He's just a guy who uses a Mac. Riddle me this, Mac world. <laughs> uh, and, and so last uh, little news update, uh, because you're a home cut, home kit uh, fan, uh, future fan, um, the, the iHome smart plug, which I just read about recently, I noticed that um, uh, I think it came out. Uh, yeah, I've got one at my house. Yeah, so it's already sold out. It's very a soon. 40 buck device that lets you plug into an outlet and then you can control it through uh, iOS and uh, uh, by the time I found out about it, it's already sold out. So it was, um, it's, but it's going to be part of, I mean, it's part of a wave of things that are coming. But the fact that it was 40 bucks and you could plug it into an outlet, you didn't need any, didn't need any specialized gear, uh, made it sort of the perfect thing to, you know, mess with HomeKit. Yeah. And now you have if to you want to start with more. just one lamp or a fan or something really simple like that. Clap this on, is... clap off. Yeah, it's the clapper for a modern age. Someone will make that up. It's actually harder because instead of just clapping, you got to find your phone oh, oh. or talk to your watch or whatever. Wait, I've got the the clap app. <laughs> the clap app. <laughs> that would be pretty great. Or, or the app on, app off. App you on, should be able to off. like have Siri set it up for you. Like You could do HomeKit, set it up, put it in a scene or whatever, and then tell Siri, okay, like when I clap twice... Set this scene. Right, that would be great. That would be great. I mean, they need to add clapper support to Siri. Clapper support. Get, put the clap in Siri. Wait, what? <laughs> Siri the clap. Not what we're talking about here. Uh, <laughs> all right. Also, on to, on to some news. Uh, we want to talk about uh, the, the main body of this podcast. We're going to talk about, uh, uh, briefly, um, base stations, because Google made an announcement. And then we'll also talk about Safari content filters in iOS 9. But before we do that, I want to thank our sponsor this week, Red Hat. I want to take just a moment uh, because, uh, you know, Red Hat is a company that people may be less aware of in the Mac world, even though much of what you do in the world is powered by Red Hat and you didn't even know it. The extent of open source adoption is probably much broader than you think, and most of that open source is running in elite data centers. Uh, it's running Red Hat. And it's more than just Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which is their flagship offering. Red Hat offers storage solutions, cloud computing, and everything you need for application development. It's all open source and all enterprise grade. Red Hat runs in every executive department of the U.S. federal government, every airline, telecom giant, and healthcare company in the Fortune Global 500, the, the New York Stock Exchange, and every commercial bank in the Fortune 500. In fact, more than 90% of all the companies in the Fortune 500 use Red Hat for everything from the critical to the routine. 
The only thing that's really surprising is how many people, people who know a lot about technology, don't know this. It's a surprise for a lot of folks that Red Hat is there behind the scenes. It's like they snuck in, got comfortable, and quietly transformed the technology business without making a fuss. Sometimes the most disruptive technology is the stuff no one notices at first. So if you want to find out more about how Red Hat is quietly redefining enterprise technology, visit redhat.com. Red Hat, build on it, run with it, count on it. And thank you to Red Hat for being our sponsor this week. So speaking of things that are often hidden. Speaking <laughs> of things. Uh, Google made this, I thought, an interesting but odd announcement. Uh, the Google OnHub, the first uh, in a series of wireless space stations. Hey, cool. Someone's coming out. Never heard of what's a, why would, what's Wi-Fi? <laughs> It kind of looks like a cross between the Amazon Echo and the Mac Pro. Yeah, it's, it's a, a I mean, it's big. Round. It's a big round black thing. Yeah, it goes in your house. So it's a router. It's a, got a speaker in it. It supports the Zigbee connected home protocol. Um, yeah, we were talking the other day about how maybe the new Apple TV, which will also be kind of a HomeKit um, hub, should maybe just be a router as well or a repeater because. It seems kind of weird that these things are like separate appliances in our house right yeah, now. Yeah, the, the one thing, so, I mean, OnHub is, I, I'm, I'm sort of joking because it's not 2015, it's almost 2016, and Google's like, hey, let's make a Wi-Fi router. It's like, really? And for $200, like, really? It's what? You know, so I feel like they have to have had a really strong motivation. And they've had mixed luck with consumer hardware before. Remember their, mm, um, yes. I can't, what was their ball-shaped media product? That's what I was thinking of the too, Q. the Nexus Q, I believe yeah. it was called. and it was being manufactured in the U.S. It was <laughs> this, and it disappeared without a trace. It was like a Sergey product. It was like, all right, yeah. We've, we've got one. Yeah. Oh, they're pretty. They're pretty. It, I mean, it was beautiful. But then, you know, the Chromecast, by contrast, has been wildly successful. And I know it comes in many, you know, it's like embedded technology, but you can also get devices, right? You got USB or uh, things that plug into HDMI ports and so it's not that Google doesn't know how to make stuff, and it's getting better at making. You know, it's got the Nest division, even though this is not coming from Nest, I believe. This is coming from its main – actually, I'm not sure at this point. Did they say whether it was coming from Nest or not? I don't remember. Uh, the, they're manufacturing it with uh, TP-Link, TP which is a router and a network hardware maker. Uh, they partnered with them, and TP-Link is making it. So I'm not sure what division this will fall It has the under. Weave programming language, which is kind of um, Google's Internet of Things yeah, language, kind of Google's HomeKit. Um, and that yeah. came out of Nest Labs. So I am I have to assume that this is at least like – I don't know if it's like a Nest-branded product, but it's you know going to be very, very compatible with the Nest system of – Connected home. Yeah, and they, they've got another one that's going to come out uh, later this year, apparently, which they haven't announced yet. I don't know what they'll call it. They're calling this OnHub, but I'm not sure if it's the product line. I think it is. Uh, but the one that comes out later will be from a different manufacturer as well. So I'm not sure if they're going to wind up branding stuff. That uh, if you do see like the Nexus phones, like made by somebody else, but Google. Oh, Asus is going to be the second Asus, partner. right? Yeah, and they make a ton of stuff. So, I, and then maybe they'll help get the price down. But so it just seems like a weird play. Like, what's missing from the market that that needs to be there that they think people will pay two hundred dollars for? And apropos of the Apple TV, this doesn't include Chromecast capability. It doesn't have HDMI or any kind of other video output. It's really it's a Wi-Fi based station. It does, as you said, it does Zigbee. It also does a uh, Thread, which is Weave is the language and. Thread is the technology, is that right? Thread is Samsung, uh, Samsung, and uh, a few other companies, and Google. Uh, so I mean, Thread and Zigbee were competitors, and then they've now formed an interoperability thing. You can create like right. a Zigbee something, so they can they can work on the same router. Uh, so 802.15.4 is the underlying 
tech. Um, it's going to do what else? It has, uh, it has one USB port, which hasn't been fully described what it's going to do. It's a speaker. Speaker, but the speaker's only three watts is the thing. They don't but maybe it's just for, you know, like voice commands. Maybe it's not actually playing you music, but... I guess, but, well, there's no... Is there a mic? Or something. I don't know that there's a microphone. Maybe not. That's the but weird... But it's got Bluetooth, so maybe you talk to your, your phone or your watch yeah, or and something, then it could talk and then it talks to, to the router, and the router talks back, and you're just sitting in your house talking to machines. Yeah, the only thing know. they mentioned was, you know how Google has that um, audio-based setup with Android, so you'll be able to um, plug the router in. If you've got an Android phone, it'll use audio signals to talk to your phone. Oh, yeah, maybe it could... You know, like dog whistle kind of stuff. Exactly. Well, that's what it does. I mean, it's hilarious, but it's Perfect. great. It's a great idea because you don't have to pair with Bluetooth. You don't have to do set up Wi-Fi. You just hit a button. It'll go like, blah, 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 blah. And your Android phone will go, oh, I recognize that. <laughs> it'll be it'll be like Sean the Sheep. My son just got an RTD2 backpack, so now I want all my things in my house to start like squeaking at each other. Oh, my God. No, I think it's Sean the Sheep. Now's the time in the podcast where we just make silly noises. It's the Swedish chef moment. So Mike Brown, who um, is the executive editor of TechHive, and he is a Wi-Fi guy. He's a smart home guy. He knows so much about this stuff. He says that $200 isn't really even ridiculous for a high-end router. Like, there's ones that cost, like, 300 bucks. And the router I use, I use, like, the – I mean, I use an Apple one, but, I mean, I use, like – other than that, I use the cheapest cable modem mm-hmm. I can find. And I was never like, I'm going to spend a lot of money on networking gear. But that's just because, you I mean, you were just networking, like, a few computers together. And now it's like our networks are getting so big, and you're networking so many more things in your house and – you want to be able to control it from outside, and it's got to be very, very secure. And so maybe routers are, you know, that th- this is going to be a new dawn for for high-end, complicated routers that are easy to use and have all these extra features. I just feel like it doesn't house. have enough. Isn't that wrong of me? Like, I think if you're going to – like, adding an HDMI port to it would have meant it was the complete thing. Not having it – I had somebody uh, tell me uh, on Twitter, I was talking about this, and somebody said, oh, a Comcast tech told me – that HDMI and Wi-Fi base stations interfere. And I said, well, I mean, you could if the shielding was bad. I saw someone then, totally unrelated, say they're having trouble with um, some new Wi-Fi router they put in and HDMI, like a Roku or something, uh, that they're getting signal issues on their TV, which was interesting. Um, But I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, HDMI, it's a wired standard, but it can also, of course, anything that's carrying a signal in a wire or wirelessly can be interfered with even, um, even when you've built things correctly, but I don't know. I, I don't I haven't seen that before. Uh, and nonetheless, you can get an Apple TV has Wi-Fi and HDMI built in. It's just the Wi-Fi isn't as high-powered as you use for a router, but it's not a low-powered Wi-Fi signal. Um, yeah, I, I've read some analysts talking about what the market for hubs is you can get a good Wi-Fi hub for 50 bucks. So to tell someone to spend $200, you really have to make a case for it. And so if it's a home automation, it's like home automation, it does Bluetooth, it's pretty. It puts it out there. And uh, Google has this whole thing. There's 13 antennas in this 13 device. antennas. It's a lot. And I had to go back and forth. I can't, you know. One of them is just for sniffing out network interference. Yeah, which is. 12 are actually for moving your bits around. Which is great. It's very clever. So Apple has on the airport extreme base station. I, and I, had a, I went back and forth with a, a Wi-Fi guru on Twitter, I know, um, about this because we were trying to figure it out. And then I finally found the illustrations that Google that explained it. So Apple has. So uh, both Apple Airport Extreme and the Google OnHub 
they are simultaneous dual band routers. They can do both 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz networks at the same time. And that's a standard mm -hmm. feature in most routers. The Airport Express, which is, I think, 99 bucks now, does that too. It's not an expensive feature anymore. So it's got two separate radio systems. Each of the radio systems can produce three separate streams of data, and it uses reflection. This is what makes uh, made 802.11n and then 802.11ac work best, is they actually... Um, almost uh, uh, 802.11ac can steer traffic, but the, um, but the idea is that you have signals bouncing off stuff, and these three different streams for each band, so six streams in total, can each have a full bandwidth connection. So that's how you wind up getting 600 megabits per second as a raw, you know, sort of pretend to top rate in 2.4 gigahertz and 1.3 gigabits per second in five gig in, in the five gigahertz band. Uh, and this all sounds kind of crazy, but it's true. You can get you can wind up with hundreds of megabits per second of usable throughput across multiple devices using one base station, which is cool. So what Google did, uh, so Apple I should say, so Apple has six antennas. It devotes three each to each band, right? So 2.4 gigahertz is three, five gigahertz is three. Apple's antennas both receive and transmit in the same element. Google has six antenna elements, each of which has two antennas on it, one for receive and one for transmit. So uh, they're, they're saying this is a better approach. They've also spaced them around a circle at 120 degree increments. So they're pointing out in different directions, which some people have issues about how that's gonna work. But the idea is that it's going to be so uh, good at discriminating a signal and have such good antenna performance that you'll put one of these in and fill, you know, an entire, like, I, don't, I mean, they're not saying this, but like a 2,500 square foot house with two floors. Like, imagine putting one router in and doing that. And that, this is more towards that end. So if their thing is buy this for 200 bucks, you put it in, it does all your home automation. It's easy to set up. Uh, you'll be happy to leave it out because it doesn't look ugly. And you need one for your house. You don't have to buy one and then run wire or do some kind of wireless connection to make it work elsewhere. Um, I mean, I think that's going to be the ultimate pitch for it. And it's been sort of what the pitch was for um, Apple's uh, Airport Extreme and uh, Time Capsule since it was revised for the latest Wi-Fi standard, too, to make the, the tower version. Yeah, I just got the big, the big Apple router. I like it. It's empty in the Extreme version. There's like three inches of dead air in it. Oh, cool. They put a, there's a drive in the time capsule one, and in the airport extreme, it's just there's just no it's just empty space. They move the antennas are in there, but um, yeah, I don't know. So I I'm not sure what the market is there, and I'm a Wi-Fi guy, and I I just don't know, just don't. We'll know. We'll see. Yeah, um, but it's good. It'll, it'll hopefully it'll push Apple because my my assumption is, and I think I've heard this a bit from people you know in the industry, is Apple sells its airport extreme for 180 bucks. The time capsule is. What is it now? I think it's 300 and 400 for one terabyte and two terabyte drive, something like that. Yes. And uh, yes, yeah, and huge profit margin. They paid these things off years ago. I mean, these are incredibly cheap to make. I would not be surprised if the margin is like 40% plus on these. I got uh, mine on the refurb store. Oh, oh, good. Yeah. And there's nothing, right? You use Wi Fi base station. There's nothing wrong with that. So yeah. the, the question I have is like, you know, is Apple, these are cash cows. Apple sells them because people are like, oh, I want a router. I'll just get Apple's thing. They go into store, they buy a Mac for two grand. They're like, you want this router? It's great. It'll fill your house. It's the latest thing. It'll do blah, blah, blah. People go, sure, I guess. And they buy it and they buy Airbnb Express, or whatever. And Google may be going after that. And uh, so that maybe this will push Apple to put HomeKit, you know, build HomeKit and Bluetooth and other stuff into. A next generation product or to you know do fancier stuff do do some you know combined products or whatever 
We shall see. So, uh, all right. So that's probably enough about that. <laughs> it's not out yet anyway. It's com- <laughs> in the coming weeks, you'll be able to buy it. I'm hoping to get my hands on one and be able to uh, test it myself. And uh, I know that Mike will be testing it for a tech hive and, uh, and get his usual expert opinion on that. See what the scoop is. Um, so here's our last topic. Is, uh, it's a big one. Safari, co- <laughs> Safari content filtering in, uh, in Iowa. This hits 9. a little close to home. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, yeah. right. if you're As work- people who make content on the internet, we are very interested in how content is consumed on the internet. And um, yeah, the, there's these content filters that are coming in iOS 9. Glenn has gotten his hands on some early versions. And it's, I guess, the, the experience is, is much changed from surfing the mobile web as it exists today. Yeah, it's going to be scary for people. I, You know, I could think about this intellectually, and I'm like, I read about it, and I was like, oh, well, this is good. You know, I've got Ghost reinstalled, and I don't block, I, you know, I write for publications of advertising. I don't block ads. I block trackers. So, like, when I go to Macworld, for instance, I will, I've gone through and I've turned off things that are listed by Ghostry as beacons, so they're, like, signals. But I, I want you to get the analytics. I want you to sell advertising. I'm not going to turn that off. And just by doing a little bit of tweaking on various sites with Ghostry, uh, I've, uh, the performance is better. And I don't get the hangs or I don't get things that didn't load and the spike comes up faster. So but beacons I beacons are the one that I want to turn off. I've been using Ghostry, too, and I'm a little confused as to, like, what I should be turning off. Well, and, and then there's combined on. networks. Like, there's some – I was at one site and it listed a bunch of stuff that were like video players and i'm like i'm not seeing video which means that code is being bloated behind the scenes either to fake ad advertising i'm not gonna mention the sites because and these weren't you know it's weren't like <sighs> our it site is the worst i'm just gonna go on record and saying that our site is terrible for trackers and 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 scripts and stuff like I'm looking at it right oh, now. Oh, hey, it's, look, go, it's to, awful. go to the economy. We use like three different, f- three or four different analytics things on here, and it's just like, how many analytics do you need? Go to eco- <laughs> go to economist.com. They have I think fifty things that pop up in Ghostry. Yeah, and you're I like, mean, it's probably not the worst I've seen, but I've seen some of our pages where it's like it's high twenties, like low thirties, and yeah. that's gross. And like so, I'm really sorry, you guys. I have no control over any of this. And this irritates people. So I mean, we've uh, I think people have talked about this plenty. I don't have to go into great detail, and then we've talked about it a little bit on this show. Is is you know every different kind of thing, you know every widget you want, every kind of tracking. So you know you want to track one kind of thing. You do company X. You want to have. Um, you know, was it Vig links? You want to have links on the page turn into product pop-ups so people can buy stuff and you get affiliate revenue. You uh, need a certain kind of tracking for some client requires a certain kind of tracking if you're if they're going to advertise on your site. Or maybe there's different giant national advertisers and they have different requirements. So suddenly you've got five different things. All of these are separate JavaScript libraries and the libraries can be hugely duplicative. So tons of code is launching. It's like we're being asked to run. Okay, I want to look at a web page, and and there's JavaScript associated with that. Uh, that's going to load and do stuff. But then I'm being asked to run 10 to 50 separate programs, each of which has their own huge code base. I'm loading megabytes or more of stuff for things that barely touch me, that don't affect and improve my experience or my ability to read or interact or be a loyal subscriber or reader or what have you. And, uh, you know, one strategy would be, well, shouldn't all these outfits get together and have one blob of code and agree what goes in there and they all access like a common code base and it's like, no, these are all separate companies. They're never going to do that. They're never going to coordinate that. They think their software is their secret sauce. It may be. So the only recourse readers have, uh, regardless of whether it breaks some kind of compact with the site that's being supported by advertising in part or whole, is they're going to say, look, I can't use, this is unusable. And either I'm not going to come back anymore and you don't get any of me, or I'm going to be a reader 
And I'm going to come back and maybe you'll have to find other ways to engage with me because I'm going to turn all this stuff off. And uh, people have been doing that in huge numbers with uh, was it Adblocker Plus and Ghostery and other software on the desktop. And, uh, you know, we've seen the numbers are huge. Now it's a very, very large percentage of people who browse. And now the iOS 9 uh, content filters will let third-party developers uh, just write software that says, hey, block this stuff. Just don't load these things from these URLs or filter or whatever. And they'll all be different. Um, the thing so is, how do they work? Are they like little, or is it like a browser and you, and you open this app and... No, it's it's all within Safari. It's like a plug-in, kind of like the uh, the add-ons okay. that you have now and the sharing sheet and so forth. It's integrative. So you, uh, you install it as an app and there'll be an app front end, even if it's a stub. So one of the ones I'm testing, I mean, they may have to put more in in the actual release version to get Apple to improve, approve it. So I'm seeing, you know, some of them are betas that have only been around for a couple months and some are even more, or say only a couple since iOS 9 uh, started getting released to uh, developers for testing. Uh, so some are, some are more mature, I should say, and some are more recent. Um, but uh, the bar is very low. I mean, if you can do apps uh, or if you're an app programmer, it's not like this is developing, you know, a new streaming audio system. It's like uh, the first one was written in an hour. And it worked fine. It just wasn't sophisticated. It wouldn't pass Apple's review process, but it worked, and it did what it was supposed to do. Uh, so it'll be a uh, on the front-facing side. You'll install an app. You'll buy or or get a free app, and you'll run an app to configure. Oh, well, you know, actually, it's a little bit like the uh, the keyboard plugins now, the alternate keyboards. Okay. So even though you rarely interact with the app version of it, there'll still be some kind of app thing you go to and can do yeah, stuff. Yeah, you can stick that in a folder, but then but yeah. the actual blocking happens in Safari. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, I so, think I knew this. I haven't. Tried any well, of them it's confusing. Yet. You've and got then, three, right? Then you go to settings. You go to the settings app. You go to Safari, and there'll be a thing: the content filters uh, option, just like there's a keyboard option for uh, for setting keyboards, and it'll show you all the content filters that are installed, and you can flip them on and off, and you can do multiples uh, too. You can have multiple ones on, although then they may start to uh, degrade performance and interfere with one another. But the idea is that some of these will do things like, you know, maybe there'll be shared uh, lists of, of shared block lists. Um, some of them will be pulling in Google's uh, anti-phishing list. Um, I should point out, you know, this isn't just – the content filters Apple is doing, it's, it's enabling people to have control of their browsing experience even if it impacts the sites that are feeding them stuff, right? So mm -hmm. that's, that's a tension. But it's also um, – this will enable uh, better – uh, safer experiences for people. Like if all people said, like, I don't care about ads, it doesn't bother me, none of this is okay, I, my, everything's fine, but I'm really worried about my security on the internet because I know that Safari does get exploited and these don't, so far, these don't become widespread exploits that, you know, affect thousands or millions of people. But someone says, I don't want to go to sites that fish me. I don't want to go to sites that display pornography. I don't want to go to sites that are, you know, I want to have an adult filtered, uh, adult, um, sorry, adult content filtered site for my kids. Uh, right now, the options are sort of terrible on mm -hmm. iOS. You have to use an alternate browser. It's not complete. So a content filter could do a specific purpose. It could be a uh, some site that's like these are sites that are whitelisted for 18 and under. Some place could be um, we're finding phishing sites that through, via reports like a McAfee kind of thing or a, or a Sophos or these other companies. Uh, so there's a lot of variation. It's not all going to be about you you know blocking ads. Right. It's a content filter. Mm -hmm. Which isn't just a nice way of saying ad blocker, but I'm yeah. sure a bulk of the use will be to block annoying ads, which I totally understand because ads are really annoying and sometimes they play when you don't want them to. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you mean a little page without? I don't your think it's supposed to happen on mobile, but you know, yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's, yeah, I mean, mobile already sites have to you know reformulate for that, but. Uh, 
you know, it's a failure of the industry to be creative because they're doing what works. But you know, what's been working is a is a dive to the bottom. Is is um, mm-hmm. the amount of money made per impression or view or whatever kind of measure is being used? Uh, it keeps getting driven lower because people are well. Actually, one reason is people are using blockers, so you're getting a smaller audience by by offering advertising people don't want to see and that yeah. interfere with their experience, fewer people are seeing it, and then people are sick of it. And so the response rate is worse and worse and worse, which lowers the price. So there's clearly what's happening now is um, a major failure, despite all the money it brings in. It's bringing in billions of dollars, but it's not um, the direction of the future. So I think there were some predictions that when this came out, iOS 9 would be an apocalypse for sites. And I don't think it's going to be like that. I think it's going to be a, uh, a quick drop and then a slow burn. And um, everyone needs to be prepared for it. What kind of things, uh, I mean, this is, you know, I'm not, I am a freelancer, not an employee of any publication. What kind of things are we going to see instead of ad blobs? Because there must be some alternative. uh, People are thinking about this. What are we going to see instead of uh, all the ads if ads are blocked? I mean, the the buzzword now that I'm hearing a lot about, and I I try to just kind of keep my head down and make the content that, our site makes. That's kind of my, I'm just running the day to day and I don't have a lot of input or, you know, like I can give input, but I don't have a lot of decision-making power. So, but the, you know, the, the word that they talk about is, uh, is native now, which Mm -hmm. sounds kind of fun. Um, and that's just sort of a a nice term for advertorial. It's, uh, when, when, when they make content and a lot of it is video content now, um, cause that's what pays the bills. They make content that's kind of sponsored by by somebody and then you know that can be good stuff um as long as it's very clearly labeled that this is native content (laughs) that this is coming to you from you know xyz company and it's not all just you know like like a big commercial like some of it is really trying to give you good information so so yeah there's there's divisions of the company that are working on that um and that's that's going to be a thing um, but yeah, we just, Macworld is very ad supported still. And I know that, you know, it angers people when, when we do, there's all this crap on our site. There's a lot of trackers and there's auto playing videos where you get like one sentence of the video and then it goes right into an ad. So people are like, why are you just playing a commercial for me when I came to the site? And it's like, yeah, I, I don't know. That, that sucks. I wish they would turn it off. So we've been trying. Um, it comes up a lot. It's a very sensitive topic. So we're not going to let it, you know, drop anytime soon. And people give us feedback on Twitter and in the comments of the articles. And sometimes there's a lot of emotion in that feedback. And I totally understand. And I just want you to know I'm on your side. And I take that feedback and I send it up to the bosses. So hopefully someday they'll figure it out. But I've tried to alert them, too, to this this new thing because a lot of people are talking about it. Like this content blocking thing is happening. Um, privacy and security and all these topics are, are kind of woven together now. And that's a good thing. I think um, I'm, I'm really excited that there's a lot of discussion about this because <laughs> – that's the first step towards changing it and making it better. And people should have a good web experience. Like you're paying money for this, you know, even though the sites that you come to are free and ad supported, like you're, you're paying for the internet and you only get so much of it every month. And we want you to, to spend your, your data allotment on our sites. We have to, you know, treat you with respect. So 
Yeah, I'm, so keep keep giving us the feedback, and I, you know I can't promise anything because it's not up to me. But um, yeah, I, I really I'm interested in how this is going to play out because um, you know I used to work <laughs> in print, and 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 that's kind of that's that's not the market it used to be, and now I work online. So well, you know that a lot of people who are outside of the periodical business they and they assumed that subscriptions actually paid for the cost of Oh, not even close. I know, but you know, it's people like, well, why don't you just do, you know, you used to have print subscriptions. Why don't you just do that that you don't need ads? Like, well, here's the thing. The subscriptions paid for 10% to 30% of the yeah. expenses. Uh, I mean, New York Times, famously, if you want to get a um, digital-only subscription New York Times, you know, they have it broken up in weird ways, it's actually cheaper to get to get the paper, yeah, because <laughs> there's something I've seen this estimate. I forget if it's still true. It was like a two dollar and fifty cent copy of the New York Times includes ten dollars worth of advertising. I mean, they make ten dollars in ads from it, from you having that Sunday paper in your mm. hand. So there's like a Sunday only New York Times subscription you can get that includes like I think all digital, like iPad, iPhone, whatever, in a six-month, like $15 a month promotion. I'm not sure what they're doing now, but it's something, it was this uh, ridiculous deal, and I think it's going to remain there uh, because they simply cannot, they can sell print ads uh, more expensively because they work better, even though ostensibly online advertising is better measured. You can see the impact, but print advertising has a bigger impact on people. And, and cap uh, captive audience. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know it has a different things. But so, yeah, I mean, I am I am all for advertising that is not intrusive. And you know, there's pre I didn't learn, I just learned this word the other day. So there's interstitials that pop up while you're trying to do something. The pre-stitial, I did not heard this word. So it happens before, like Forbes. You go to Forbes.com, and oh, it's yeah, like, quote of the day, one more page, and yeah. an ad, and then you click through to continue. Uh, sometimes it shows up on IDG sites, but the, you know, I've gone there, like, interfering with my experience to market at me, it must have some effectiveness, but the effectiveness decreases the more it's used, and um, it's all these things irritate people. So it's advertisers are going, I mean, you're, um, you know, the uh, editorial sites advertising groups are going to have to rethink how they approach this when you have uh i forget the numbers it's 70 percent of people who believe between certain like younger people block i i don't have the number to hand there was just a it's report. probably a it's got to be more than half there was just a report that came out that was extensive yeah. a few weeks ago but it's you know so you're going to wind up ios users uh, you know it's going to be some huge percentage it's going to be 50 percent 80 percent 90 percent of ios users who uh, by volume of browsing, not by individual, because there's going to be, you know, if there's a billion people or let's say there's, I think I did the number the other day, let's say there's 800 million people with active iOS devices browsing, half of those people will never install an app or they install one, right? They're not app focused and they're not even thinking there's a solution for this. But of the other half that install more than an app, uh, you know, a large percentage of them are going to be told, oh, all you have to do is go here, click, get the free one. You know, it's, and it could be ad supported, ironically. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you know, the, then, so the workarounds will happen. And the, the question will be is like, how aggressively are sites going to try to bypass these blockers as they do on the desktop now to show me ads and, and native content. The, the idea with native content though, that's interesting is you have to seek it out. Like native content doesn't throw itself in your face. Native mm -hmm. content has to attract you and get you to go to it. So as opposed to being a pop-up ad or a thing or a graphic or a movie or whatever, something on a page has to be like, hey, you want to know more about, you know, Blarty Blar, um, here's 15 ways to use Blarty Blar to make your finances better, right? And you go, oh, mm -hmm. oh, well, actually, I need to make my finances better. I've heard of that product. You click on it and you go to something that looks like an article and it says, this is sponsored by Blarty Blar. And then it's a well-written, typically 
well-written article, often by a journalist or a journalist-adjacent person, not like PR marketing copy, which can be good for its purposes. But, you know, this is written to be read like an article at any other editorial site. It just happens to be paid for and focused on a product. So not as a, as a reporter, I'm not trying to justify that as well, as long as it's well-labeled. It's fine, but the only way native content works is if you compel people to actually read it and act on it. So it's more, um, at some level, genuine in that it's not trying to shake you down off to the side. It's not trying to fool you. It's like, hey, this thing you're interested in, we have a whole article that's written with our with an editorial approach that could be of interest. And I, I don't know if native will be the whole thing. There's going to be lots of different models. I think subscriptions have got to come back too, just to form part of the revenue picture. And and um, I'm not sure if people are ready for that still. I'm not sure it's going to happen, but something needs to happen. Yeah. So native kind of reminds me of how when, you know, DVRs got big and stuff and you could skip the commercials. <laughs> yeah. And then the commercials kind of had to be more entertaining. You yeah. Know? They had to put the movie trailer first. So you would like get coaxed into like not fast forwarding the movie trailer. And then they had to follow the movie trailer with like a really funny commercial, like with a dog in it or a baby. And then maybe you'd watch that one. And then like <laughs> I would sit there through like three or four commercials and then realize, oh, wait, I'm watching commercials. So, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. And like native content is cool because you have to click on it. It works like an article. It's there and it's trying to entice you to click on it and you have to click on it for anything to happen. That's hilarious. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that all shakes out. But, I stopped um, watching broadcast TV a while ago. And so, uh, you know, a tape with uh, an over-the-air uh, device from, um, I'm like, the name of it. It's digital. Uh, oh, wait, hold, hold, let me get this right. I'll say it. Digital. What is it called? Digital. What is the darn thing called? We've talked about your TV thing a few times. I know, times. I can't remember the name of it since I started saying it. I should say it's digital silicon dust, silicon dust. I don't know. Hold on a second. Silicon dust. This, okay. So I stopped watching broadcast uh, television, really, but I have a uh, this HD home run product from silicon dust. It's an uh, Ethernet-based uh, uh, DVR, essentially. Well, it's an Ethernet-based tuner, rather, and then you can use it with DVR software like ITV, E-Y-E, TV. And a few other products, and uh, so you know, watch Jeopardy or something. I'll turn it on, and my kids are so fascinated by the commercials. But the commercials are so terrible in local television. The children's so, ones are really bad. Too. Well, but yeah, oh god, and you know, so this is a syndicated show. Jeopardy is not available in any other form. So people who like Jeopardy, which is still many millions of people who watch it every night, they are getting the like worst cheapest advertising around it. it's like unbearably awful compared even to like to primetime tv advertising they didn't have to lesson and like that's sort of what and stuff. the web feels like like i want to read this article it's surrounded by the worst advertising you know and again it's not a criticism of the advertisers like the volume of it it's like i don't want to be yeah. have a tiny content window and this massive amount of ads i want i want ads i click on ads i buy things online i am a customer i'm a consumer and I want to be informed. I just don't want to be taken advantage of. I don't want to be hijacked. And you know, we didn't even talk about the private. You know, the privacy issues which gets a lot of people is is they don't want their information disseminated to forty different organizations that they don't know anything about, and they'd have to individually go and track down and find out about and decide whether they don't want to be tracked by them with separate opt in opt out policies. So uh, you know, all of this is adding up to it's all going to be different, Susie. It's all going to be different. Um, yes, we'll it is all going to be different. We'll and I hope here. that, you know, we don't see, because I mean, people, people get upset when their favorite sites go away. So, so I hope we don't see a lot of our favorite sites go away. I know this is why I wish subscriptions had been 
more effective. There'd been some way to do it earlier because, um, you know, this is, I ran, Hey, I ran a subscription only publication, no advertising called the magazine that I bought from Marco Armin. And, uh, our problem was it was very hard to reach new people and convince them. So maybe our content wasn't compelling enough. I'm not going to brag. I think we did. I think we did a really good job with it. I'm very happy with all the writers. Uh, but that aside, it was very, very difficult for us to find, uh, an audience and convince them like, Hey, I know you can go to Buzzfeed and read features by some of the same people write for us. Mm -hmm. You can go to, uh, you know, all these sites that make content available for free with ads. We have no ads, but we need you. And we couldn't sell that as a concept because there were too many other places to go. So if those other places disappear or start putting up paywalls, uh, or doing some other system that requires, you know, you got to watch this movie. You know, you go to an airport, it says, here's free Wi-Fi, watch this 30-second ad. You're like, oh, maybe I should just use my LTE connection. You know, what do I have left in my plan this month? All these choices. So um, I just hope that subscription revenue could be, it can't be the full solution for almost any site, only for, you know, typically for very small or maybe for very large ones. Uh, where the, you know, millions of subscribers for, you know, big staffs and, Hundreds of subscribers for one person trying to do it as part of their living. But um, paying for stuff is good if you want that stuff to exist. Well, Glenn's looking at a few of these content blockers, and he's going to get a, a sneak peek kind of thing up on the site pretty soon. So yeah, keep well, your eye out for that. This is a very interesting topic. <laughs> we'll do some side-by-sides. Here's what the page looks like, and and uh, here's how long it takes to load. And, uh, oh, I can't uh, wait. Oh, it's terrifying. <laughs> All right, well, uh, this I guess this is uh, – we've hit, we've, caught, we've hit this content. We should block ourselves. We're going to filter ourselves out. <laughs> Let yes. people go on with their days. Uh, so this is uh, th- Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Nice to talk to you again. Yes, always a pleasure. And thanks to our sponsor this week, Red Hat. And uh, this has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 471 for August 26, 2015. I'm Glenn Fleischman. Glad to talk to you. Send us feedback, podcast at macworld.com or comment on Twitter or at macworld.com on this post. Let us know what you want to hear about. Let us know what you think. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.